So arriving into this space together, let's just take a short while to sit quietly. Finding your body. In any way that you can. A lot of love, care, tenderness as we come into relationship to our embodied experience. Just feeling the body, maybe you can feel the rhythm of the breath. And to the extent that you can, just receiving what is felt, what is experienced. With care, with patience, with tenderness. Appreciation. Just softening around the face and the shoulders, softening the belly, palms of the hands, down through the torso and legs, arms, soles of the feet. Perhaps on an exhalation. Noticing our awareness, just receiving sound, feeling, sensation, impressions. The awareness just is receptive. Moments of experience arising, being touched with knowing awareness, infused with listening, Yeah.
tenderness, discernment, just as it is. Perhaps noticing how immediate and yet boundaryless awareness actually is, receiving what is, knowing what is in each moment, sound rising, it's known, it dissolves, still the listening remains. Phenomena arising, touching, awareness, awareness remains. Unblemished, undistorted, unharmed. Living, vibrant. Deep source, presence, intelligence, just is, knowing. Maybe feeling around the heart, heart center. In the, what's the felt sense in the front of the torso of the body, where a lot of feeling tone is carried, a lot of impact happens. 
just gently, kindly, sensitively, caringly, receptive to what is felt. The heart down through the middle of the body, into the belly. Feels too intense, one can just open into the space more of awareness, into the extremities, palms, soles of the feet. One can shuttle in and shuttle out in relationship to maintaining well-being, capacity. Not trying to figure anything out, but just allowing the intelligence of awareness, the healing power of awareness, just to rest in a receptive, relationship to what is felt. being interested in your experience.
So this theme this morning on engaged dharma, um, I don't really feel to approach it from the place of um, what everyone needs to go and do because I know the depth, or I don't know of course, but I feel and respect the depth of engagement already present in this room. Um, that none of us can avoid actually being deeply engaged <laughs> in uh, our lives and in, in the web of life that we're in and deeply impacted by what's happening around us, particularly at these times. Um, so I uh, really would like more to reflect on um, both the where we have gotten to from what's gone before and how that helps us understand where we are and the point of evolutionary um, the pressure that is in some ways like a cauldron from within which this evolutionary task is unfolding um, that is profoundly demanding of us at this time through the external crisis which of course has its roots within the human mind everything comes back as the Buddha rightly noted to the mind itself um, and it's interplay with the uh, with the, the world that we the worlds that we live within is an Arab American uh, poet and lawyer Lawrence Joseph who was asked recently in an interview um, to comment on the title of his book, a new poetry book, which is called Where Are We? And he says, well, if you mean by we, Amer as Americans, where we are collectively is in a state of humanly created, destructive and violent political chaos. And forcefully being pushed back against that are acts of resistance grounded in the deepest human aspirations, justice and love. So I think we can all say that sounds about right. Um, but you know this is an old story so this is where we are now for some of us we're just waking up into the reality and for many peoples this is a millennia long story particularly peoples who have, have been in the marginal um, slipstream of the dominant narratives and power systems of a society in here in America I think it's been very named and we all know um, some of those systems, what they look like and what they are and touch into those as, as I go on. But to, to recognize that over millennia actually, over perhaps even from the emergence of the time of conscious human history, that we have an awareness of these two great forces of that which would dominate through, um, through destruction, through control, through oppression, through violence, and that which rises up to meet it and has the spark of birthing or trying to birth and maintain um, justice, love, equity, um, and to hold to an aspirational force. Um, and these sort of play off each other in all sorts of storylines that are um, profoundly um, impactful and lived for us personally and generationally and also um, around the world and through time and space. Um, and these, uh, you know, systemic levels um, 
that which there's, you know, I think what's happening in the Dharma really, um, you know, and as we know, the first generation of transmission of the Dharma transmission from Asia into the West, which was a sort of mix of coming through many different routes, and, um, but primarily through more white middle-class culture, um, with the first um, white uh, Western, but of course, as we know in, in America, there were long-time Asian presence of Buddhism that wasn't really acknowledged or honored or respected. Chinese, American, Japanese, Sri Lankan, Southeast Asian, um, and uh, even like I met a group in uh, South Africa, where in around Durban, there's one of the largest displaced uh, dis- dis- diaspora from India. The Indian population um, is Asian Indian, brought over, of course, by the British to um, to cut the sugarcane fields. And the, um, Indian Ocean, the coastline that goes up to Mozambique, right down into Durban, so sort of tropical coastline, lots of sugar plantations still to this day, primarily because the Zulu men refused to to do the work, it's a women's work, and were, were you know, um, so Zulus gave the British a very hard time, and so there's, uh, anyway, I'm sort of going off at a tangent, but you know, this old story, um, but that I met a group there of uh, Indian um, Buddhist practitioners. A, a lot of them are uh, Hindu, Muslim, convert Christians. Um, but uh, that trace their lineage right back to Siddhartha Gautama. And so there is that still that stream. And of course, in India, we see also the, the so-called, um, previously called untouchable Dalit communities that have been converting to Buddhism as a way out of the caste system. So there's a lot of presence of Buddhism here in America, but primarily as we know it, and here we are at Spirit Rock, come through um, white um, transmission. And I think that first uh, transmission was very much about um, this quest for enlightenment, um, which emerged from the breakthrough of consciousness, primarily due to a lot to to psychotropic um, <laughs> openings, actually, that happened in the 60s, and the, then the weariness of Vietnam and the political uprisings, the civil rights, and all of that that erupted in America around the 60s, and a breakthrough of consciousness that happened in that cauldron. Um, that there was a real sort of focus on personal enlightenment, and not really so much engagement. And so we sort of have this idea of engaged Dharma because there was a lack of it. It wasn't necessarily the case, of course, in traditional Buddhist societies where it's a, a bit of a misnomer term or because there the monasteries provided to some degree um, a place of refuge, a place of education, a place of support and were very, very interwoven with the village life, town life. And of course, that's very changed and so on. But this idea of engaged Buddhism, and I think it's very recent that we've now come to understand, primarily due, I think, in part, in great part, to the enormity of the crisis that we find ourselves in, where we're facing the possibility of, of, um, we're definitely facing great extinction across the animal realms, but also the possibility of the collapse of human civilization due to extreme um, warming of the biosphere, the story that we all know about now, but wasn't perhaps so conscious for us until very recently for many. 
Um, and uh, so I think this has forced us to look not only at this presenting um, problem or symptoms, but to really look at the deeper systems that have brought about the causes that we now, and the challenge, deep, deep challenge that we face. It's almost like a sort of on an evolutionary scale of human development. It really feels like the sort of ultimate test. <laughs> this is the ultimate test that we've, that we've brought ourselves to as a consciousness and, and how are we going to respond. And we can't really just put a fix, um, quick, you know, band-aid on it and quick fix. You know, I think there's a lot of, the other day I was at this reunion to do with my partner. He was um, a Rose Scholar and went to Oxford and they have these reunions that we occasionally managed to get to. And there was one in San Francisco and they had all these very high flying speakers a lot from Silicon Valley that came up that were um, graduates from Oxford. And there was such a sort of um, leaning into the idea that rationality, academics, and even AI um, technology and so on would be the sort of fix that we need. There, a lot of the conversations were around that. And I, I felt this deep, deep agitation about the real lack of understanding about the damage to the soul of humanity that has been incurred through these millennia, really, of systems, um, as bell uh, hooks calls the uh, systems, calls them, calls them out as the imperialist white supremacist. We could also talk about class, caste supremacist, capitalist. We could also maybe now call it more rogue capitalism or disaster capitalism, as Naomi Klein. You look at Puerto Rico, what's happening there with a sort of um, result of the, the devastation that uh, these sort of venture capitalists move in, buying up land, creating golf courses while the indigenous peoples, native peoples are abandoned, completely and utterly abandoned. So this is actually disaster capitalism. It's disasters are actually good. You know, they're sought out almost, helped created for those that are extremely wealthy. And the patriarchy, which is perhaps the oldest system and gives birth to almost everything else is at the heart of patriarchy. And it is, obviously, falls around gender, but it ultimately isn't about gender because um, there is a, a great price to pay within the masculine, the invisceration of sensitivity and the feeling nature and the lack of permission around being able to own that and have that um, as part of one's um, masculine embodiment. But, the, you know, really this... this the whole system arrives from the idea of ownership and control and separation out from what was before in um, the work of, I sort of brought this book so you can just look at it, of Anne Barring, who's an Anglo-American. She lives in Britain. She wrote this really wonderful book called The Dream of the Cosmos, which is about the evolution of consciousness as it goes through these huge spans of time. And she sort of names the lunar and consciousness and the solar consciousness as part of our evolutionary journey the last 4,000 years or so really been more in this solar consciousness the individuated ego being pulled really out of this deep sense of being within a web of life that actually there was a time and we have a memory of it almost faintly and definitely that wasn't lost in indigenous peoples, because for many indigenous peoples that's still very much their reality, um, was this uh, really this um, d 
deep um, experience of oneself, not as separate, separated out from nature and from the forces of the seasons and from the relational field and from an ensouled world where everything was alive and had meaning and, and wasn't just inanimate dead matter, that everything, even rocks and mountains were conscious and had, there was a relational meaning um, and that the, the experience of spirituality wasn't so much through religious belief and hierarchy and through um, mediation of a sort of priestly caste or through obedience um, and dogma, which is what we've mostly experienced or in a deep reaction to, <laughs> hence great interest in secular Buddhism and so on, but at still some expense to the soul. Um, a reclamation of the sacred is sort of de- denied also in that, the rational movement of Buddhism. So it follows the European rational enlightenment thing, which continues that trajectory of divorce from, from this ensouled world. That instead, we, you know, there were ways of knowing that, um, that we're trying to, in some ways, reclaim through uh, that were more like a participatory consciousness, a direct interactive engagement where what we knew to be true was more through intuition, maybe intuitive awareness, maybe meditative awareness. So the Buddha calls prajna, deep knowing, wisdom in Buddhism, um, through dreams, visions, altered states, shamanic processes, often enacted through and in relationship to the plant kingdom. These were all deep ways that ancient peoples and still indigenous peoples have of being in, in understanding their relationship to, to nature, to the cosmos, as conduits of consciousness. Um, and so, therefore, there was a great sense of belonging, um, which we've lost, which has been deliberately almost cut asunder. And probably for all of us, wherever we've come from, and whatever form that we're working through around and how we appear within these systems that Bell Hooks named, um, the wound that we all share is this great cut and loss of placement and belonging from which I think there's a great compensatory movement. And you look at consumerism, this, you know, the word, the Latin word matter literally comes from the root mother, it's sort of this loss of mother almost. Um, you know, I don't want to sort of psycho-activate everyone in the sense of you know, parental mother, but the deep mother of the earth, the deep mother of nature, the deep nourisher, and the deep um, connection with the stars and the cosmos, and the tremendous pain of the loss of that and this sort of consumption you know, when I first, one of the very first times I came to America and um, I was taken out to um, Staten Island with a beautiful, wonderful Statue of Liberty and then to um, Ellis Island and was looking at some of the original footage of the peoples, the displaced peoples coming through that um, process uh, from Europe um, and how, you know, with a suitcase and then they're really disheveled, really sort of like um, cut from their European roots, a lot fleeing all sorts of um, pogroms, um, 
famines, um, class oppression, um, displacement through colonialism, like in Ireland and so on. Um, you know, getting a chalk mark on their back, if it was a cross, going, turning their coat around, trying again. And it was very moving for me to see and to realize that I think maybe a third of Americans, um, Western white Americans came through that route and um, Eastern Europeans, you know, maybe other um, places also um, that I um, can't name right now, but many peoples, displaced peoples, Armenia, Middle East, I'm sure many across across the planet coming through Ellis Island. And it really, I just had this feeling, oh, no wonder there's this consumption, you know, because there's this feeling of needing to feed this great hole, this great loss of roots, you know. And then, of course, we know the tremendous devastation of the First Nation peoples and the genociding through the colonial project that um, we, we are looking at and addressing and naming. But the... The, the tremendous wounding, the rippling on through generational, I think we now understand a little bit more about generational trauma and even epigenetics, how trauma is carried actually in the genes and gets replicated and reenacted, how the ancestors are very much with us still in those ways, in our bones, in our blood, in our genetic makeup. And of course, we know too about the huge, tremendous... Um, we don't know enough, you know, certainly in Europe, it's a story that we still are very blind to and in, in denial about the deep um, engagement of the Euro, Euro colonial project in, in enslavement of peoples from Africa. And a, a tremendous devastation still of, of over, what, three, four hundred years of millions of people. There is, an there is an interesting map, you see it, you can just probably... Google map, displacement, Africans, slavery, those kinds of words. There's a map that you can, interactive map, that shows um, like little dots from the African continent going over to South America, Europe, you know, the um, Americas, the um, Caribbean islands and so on. And it starts, you know, maybe late 15, 16, early 1600s or so, a few dots, and then it, oh, like millions of dots, millions of, you can click on any one of those dots and get the ship, the country, um, the, the number of cargo, and the, the sheer, the sheer um, number is overwhelming. Um, and I just was reading an article the other day about, in Britain, about, um, which of course has been sort of romanticizes itself as the, as the country that sort of started to bring around the end of slavery. But what doesn't really get named is that actually the enormous compensation paid out wasn't to the, the slaves and their ancestors. That only in 1995, I think, no, actually only 2015, I think very, very recently, um, Is it written here somewhere? The trouble with notes is that you can never find it in the moment where you need to go. <laughs> anyway, you get my idea um, that the taxpayers have been paying out the owners of the slaves. That actually the only way it really stopped was to pay out the people running the slave trade. That was the only way that they could legally stop in, I think it was about 1833 or so, 
when slavery was banned. But it wasn't, it was, obviously, there was a movement of um, an ethical, idealistic movement that this is not a good thing to do. But it was so deeply woven into the economics of Europe and then the colonial project that you could actually say the whole of capitalism was founded on the slave trade. And therefore, there's huge implications for that in the terms of the wealth that particularly we as white descendants um, have been party to. Um, and indentured labor of the working classes, of course, um, that went along with it, the press gangs pushing people into the ships and so on. But up until um, very, very recently, um, Britain, taxpayers, of course, not the actual aristocracy or the um, ruling classes, of which many of our ruling classes, I think, probably about in Britain, about 75% of our current ruling class have come from the entitled upper class whose wealth was extracted from the slave trade. Cameron being a recent prime minister who brought in Brexit, a great point of division um, that's going on, uh, was also descendant from that. So, it, you know, the, these deep, deep roots into pr these present systems, and of course we know America of what we're watching, a, a tremendous, um, uh, you know, this pyramid really of power, this, 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 you know, we go right back into the roots of these systems, it sort of enacts this pyramid of power where we see the loss of the sacred from the old ways. Even right up to medieval Europe, there was still a sense of science, still in a way being in accord with the laws of nature until Galileo discovered the sun was the center, not the earth, and then the Catholic Church had a bad reaction to that piece of knowledge. <laughs> and, um, but the sacred really meant the old word, this because we've lost, really what we've lost as our collective wound is not only the sense of belonging, but the sense of the sacred. There's nothing that's sacred in the capitalist worldview, in this ownership and domination. It's, uh, you know, there's lost the sac sacrament as the old, English word means to consecrate. In Latin, it means to devote. It means to regard with reverence. It means to secure against violation and interference. It means to infuse with the divine and holy. So every piece of matter, everything, all of us are actually that. And yet how much, you know, you look at the amounts of introjective self-aversion, which has all come from the systemic ripping away from our place, divine place in the cosmos. It's, and, you know, the karma of that is this tremendous deep lack of worth and guilt and shame that we're all still uh, trying to uh, free our consciousness from. You know, this is a project to free human consciousness from these very old stories that held, hold us bound and in some ways disable us from really enacting and engaging deeply at this time because we get held still in fear, in diminished narratives about ourselves, all of which in meditation we're attempting to deconstruct. So this deep rise of the individuated consciousness, which as Ian Baring said, out of the web of life is an evolutionary process as it is when we grow up and leave our parents or the mother's womb, we have to individuate psychologically. It's quite painful and it's fraught. 
and it can go wrong and it can and it has in a way as a collective human individuated consciousness what she calls the solar consciousness arising out of the lunar consciousness of the old ways um, that went on for so long in pre-remembered history um, has really uh, brought us into this great um, these systems uh, which have um, of, of which we're rec- in recovery from and even diagnosing and revealing and for some of us a newer project as I said for many deeply immersed in that I mean go to uh, at Standing Rock you say this is a peoples that have been battling this for 500 years <laughs> you know or any colonized country been battling this this sort of pyramid of power that it's not a belonging, it's not an equitable, it's not a reverence for all beings. There's a pyramid of power that gets that we're that we're still live, living within, which is a, a myth, but it has it has power. You know that that there is this sort of abstracted God. God isn't within the material, isn't within matter, isn't within the earth. The sacred is not there anymore. It's divorced and it's up somewhere in heaven. Um, as an authority, as a, a judging, often, if you're looking at Judeo-Christian metaphor, um, as an abstract, um, over God over man, and man over woman and nature and animals. Yeah, so, um, and whites, whiteness, it's not just white, the whiteness, you know, like in Africa, I notice, when I go into the pharmacies, there's the amount of lightening creams, <laughs> Um, it's really, really um, how this metaphor of, of whiteness has gone through into peoples of colors and communities. Um, I think we heard from Joanna, her wonderful and very brave. And I mean, I, you know, this talk that Joanna gave yesterday, I, I just, I just was sitting there thinking, you know, when I grew up in the Dharma, no one talked about sex. I mean, partly because I was in Britain a lot, but we don't really talk about. <laughs> We were very repressed over there, but but you know to bring this very important subject, however you know however it landed for you, and just enormous courage of that, enormous courage of all the teachers and all of the group here that has been enacted and trying to bring these things into light. But this sort of whitening, the whiteness over color, um, internalized at great you know great profoundly, and now of course we see enacted in such horrific ways in the current political climate um, and then people over animals and I, I, I just you know there's this way I mean in the 1500s Francis Bacon who was one of this co-emergent um, movements towards the rational European science along with the the great, the great profound um, dominance of the Catholic Church which furthered the ripping apart of our collective consciousness one of his statements is nature, bound in service, hounded in her wanderings, put on a rack, tortured for her secrets. And I think this is the metaphor we're still in, and you know, applying also to the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, trees, breathing kingdom, sentient kingdom, is that these these if you look at the animal industry now, which um, I really just want to take a minute to speak to because it does get left out of our 
contemplation, when we look at you know species, and we, we you know this is another this is another system that we live within that has a huge amount of unconsciousness around it. The animals are, I mean, all beings, plants, trees, are all living, sentient, conscious. Even mountains and rocks, they're just going at a slower vibration. You know, because we can't vibe, because we can't see with. It's like a dog can hear a higher tone. As humans, we actually have a sort of narrow band of what we perceive in our range of consciousness. But it doesn't mean to say that other, what we call matter, isn't vibrating and alive at a whole different level of conscious um, time, time span and even subtle unseen beings. It's not just what we see and perceive. There's a whole lot of other realms going on and other vibrational realities going on but this 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 refusal to see animals i mean really what's happened in this systemic rise of consciousness in the way that it's been so individuated and then with this rise of i mean this is a very simplistic diagnostic and forgive me i know many of you know so much more profoundly about these and studied academically but this this tendency to see everything as a machine and us as a machine through the mechanization and industrialization, industrialization that we've all gone through, which also ripped us apart from land and community, um, that there's this tremendous um, way now that we also um, project that onto the animal kingdom through these uh, agricultural um, factory farms and farming practices. And I think it really... Beh- you know, it's really important for us to really look at that um, and to the tremendous work of people exposing that, for them to see that, to to see what actually happens um, for animals. You know, we were talking about sexuality, how we interfere with their sexual rhythms, with their pro- productive rhythms, with their family groupings, how we've completely... Uh, dominated and tortured and continue to to extract what we want from that kingdom, from that animal kingdom, without any regard or respect or love or softness. And it is profoundly, profoundly tragic. Billions of animals every day across this planet. Master Xunhua, one of the great Chinese masters that we learned from, said that if you really want to understand the roots of violence and wars, go to a slaughterhouse at dawn and really see what it involves. Um, and so this too is something that we, that we really need to awaken. It's part of our awakening journey. We're looking at all of these systems, everything that we're implicated in. It's not to judge. It's not to um, look at someone else because everyone has their own relationship to figure out and we're all implicated. I think as Temple said the other day, just driving, you know, we, we're slaughtering. And my my brother, who who does actually live like a traveller, he's he sort of lives very much on the land. He completely refuses the whole um, technological industrial world, um, and he has a very very deep knowledge of how to survive on land and live in nature. And you go for a walk with him. This is in England. Um, and he can, in Ireland too, um, where part of my family is still, and he can like, oh, you know, there's a smell, there's the fox and this and that, and he he knows all the stories, and he was just, when I go, it's like, 
he's just so heartbroken to see so much disappearance, even of the bug life. He said, you know, when we were kids growing up, there was a light outside the door and there would be like hundreds of moths and insects and there's not, not a one, not a one, you know, and, and just all the loss of the, of the rivers and the fish and all of this. I mean, I think what we're really talking about when we open up, and I think, you know, I understand how we can get so defended in denial. I don't want to judge that, you know, um, because we're really looking at a tremendous heartbreak. You know, we can't go into this journey of awakening and reclamation without touching into the tremendous heartbreak that, every, that what we have done and where it has brought us to, um, and how, how deeply painful that is. I mean, unfortunately, you know, from a Dharma eye, um, it is on some level all empty and anatta and conditioning. But I don't really want to rush to that place as a sort of quick solution, because I, didn't, I do think we have to feel the heartbreak as part of our evolutionary reclamation of healing. Um, and, you know, and to recognize how deep our denial is around what's happening. Like, well, I lived through the, the AIDS pandemic. Uh, I was at the heart of one of the, the centers of it in deep KwaZulu-Natal, um, you know, 15 years or so that went on. Um, still going on, tremendous devastation. And the, the government, and then it was the ANC government, um, at that time, was went into 10 years of denial and um, that we don't have this. And I understand, I can actually understand how it came to that place. I mean, this new liberation, the excitement of it and, and the racial implications in contracting HIV and all of the tremendous wounding around that and devastation and the shame and how that unfolded, that it was just easier to say this doesn't exist. And we had ministers dying of AIDS, saying there's no AIDS. And, you know, we have that now, we're going through an iteration of that here about climate change. And the, the, the attempt, like if we can just remove the words, if we can completely gut the EPA, if we can actually remove all evidence um, that we don't have racism, we don't have um, a catastrophic situation that we're in the midst of. Um, it's all happening if we don't really look at you know, actually take ourselves to look at a slaughterhouse. We, you know, it's all happening behind closed doors. You know, so part of when we talk about engagement, I think part of our engagement is to go everywhere that we don't want to go. <laughs> you know, um, and to look at it and to let it impact us and let our hearts break. Um, and I think in some ways what's interesting about what's happening politically in America, which is horrific, of course, you know, is both the pinnacle of this uh, this egoic consciousness, this individuated Anne Ryan, Thatcherite, Reagan, neoliberalism, religious fanaticism, controlling supremacist, classist um, movement of egoic consciousness, and its, its supreme arrival at its great power. You know, it, and it's, you know, and, and look at it. It's, you know, it's, it's narcissistic, it's despotic, it's venal, it's craving, it's unethical, it's cold, sadistic, vengeful, abusive. It's um, insane, corrupted, toxic. I've, I've got such a litany of adjectives that I produce on Facebook 
from my spleen, like the finger on the spleen of, uh, you know, someone said, you know, that, that, that this, you know, it's like the finger on the spleen of America. You know, and yet this is the child man enraged. You know, this is the egoic consciousness of, of, of the, of, that can't control it all, that wants it all. Like the Koch brothers, there was this, as mentioned, going to that um, documentary, the, the Best Democracy Money Can Buy, Oakland the other day. And, you know, uh, Koch brother, if, if, you know, I want my piece of the pie, I want it all, which is all of it. That's, that's that consciousness. I want it all. I want it all. I'm going to dominate it all and control it. And if I can't have it, I'm going to kill it. It's cold. It's the, the, the extremity of the divorce from the deep belonging to each other. And ironically, there's something positive in this horror show that we're living through. And for many, as I, and I, don't, I want to say that many, for many of us in the white culture, we're waking up to it. For many in the people of color's culture, and they've been it forever. But there's something about the horror, complete and utter horror show is that we can't go into denial actually. Well, we can. You can always, and people do, and they're massively doing it in the most extremely insane ways, you know. But as Ajahn Chah would say, in regards to personal practice, when you can't go up, you can't go down, you can't move to either side, that's when the practice really begins. You know, that's when, when uh, you know, and this is, you know, so that's why ultimately, although, it, it, you know, it's a very high risk, I have to say on, the, on behalf of the deeper intelligence of reality, because there is a deeper intelligence of reality, we're not in control as much as we'd like to think that. We're controlling a lot and we're changing the destiny of the planet, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, that, um, that, that on behalf of that, it's like a really high risk strategy. It's like, you know, let's take us all to the precipice and you've got a choice. And it's very, very clear and it's on every level of our being now. So we don't really have to talk about what are we going to do because we're so deeply engaged. This is a very conscious group. You know, we know that we're standing at the precipice of, you know, of climate devastation, extinction. 90%, I think even 99% of global wealth with the 1%. Um, without hiding it anymore, you know, so, and here we are, you know, it's a lovely sunny day in Marin, (laughs) 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 you know, um, and, and, and there's a piece of wisdom that, you know, Okot Tola says that, you know, ultimately, we're not a person, we're not people per se, we are, I don't want to deny that, we are, deeply so, but ultimately we're a focal point where the universe is becoming conscious of itself. We're at at a deep level where consciousness becoming conscious of itself. And this is an extraordinary journey. Consciousness, in the Shurangama Sutra, which is a Mahayana Sutra, talks about two roots of consciousness. It's called beginningless ignorance, beginningless birth and death, where the mind climbs on causes and conditions and becomes shaped by that. That's called sangsara. That's mostly what we know. And then the second root, this um, primal, which is the primal essence of consciousness. It's not really Theravada language, but I'm not going to try and excuse, you know apologize um, for that. 
primal essence of consciousness, conscious awareness. You know, the Buddha called it the Amata Dharma. If you want to translate it, the deathless Dharma. This is us too. And this is not just static. As we know in the wisdom territory, Prajna Paramita, Prajna, um, wisdom is dynamic. You know, it's intelligence. It's emerging from this primal conscious awareness. It's engaged. It's responsive. Highly attuned. Um, is all, you know, as, as said, all beings are resident in this awareness, in our awareness. There's no separation in reality. It's a construction of the mano-vijnana, the mind that goes out and names. This is called the vijnana, the consciousness that, of the mind that separates, differentiates, an important aspect of the mind which we use a lot. This is you, this is a tree, this is that. You know, I'm using that consciousness now to, lang- to articulate. But the trouble is we think that's the only reality. We think if I say tree that we really know what a tree is because we have the name for it. You know, but in all things resident in our awareness, that's a different level of conscious awareness. So in some ways in our journey of awakening, um, I'm much better than di- you know, to coming to this talk and realizing I, I need to wrap up quite soon. I just say that it's, you know, it's a, following the path in this talk of the four truths, the diagnostic, and the remedy. There's always a remedy, and then the path of action. You know, the remedy really, um, and the way it applies and intersects with what we're doing here, is to awaken into how we operate within separative consciousness at the most subtle level, which the Buddha named as the papancha, the um, proliferations of the mind, how that goes out and through languaging and through naming, there's this constant tendency to create the other. Um, and that's useful because we want to diagnose and look at things, but it's not the deepest consciousness that where we're going to reclaim what we need to reclaim. So to practice in a way, as, as Kuan Yin says in her enlightenment, or his enlightenment manifests, Kuan Yin manifests both as masculine, feminine, and trans, in how, um, and represents this deep consciousness, keep, keep conscious awareness. The moment of Kuan Yin's enlightenment, um, again in the Shirangama Sutra, talks about that through the listening, the depth of listening, that was her meditation, the contemplation of sound, returning to the hearing. This is the basis of Zen practice, this sutta, by the way, this sutra, of turning the mind back into its own nature, basically. I came to realize the unification with the Buddha's mind, the mind of all the Buddhas, and the unification with all beings. You have the whole span of conscious awareness. That at this depth, there is the complete and utter resonance with it, with all beings. All beings are resonant within this awareness, and the pure awareness of the knowing of Buddha mind is the knowing. You know, buddhik buddhi means to know, to know deeply, to know not just through differentiated consciousness because I can think about you, but to know really sensing 
and receiving what is. So that when I stand with another, I can know you through my cognitive mind, but I can also know you as part of the one reality, the shadow and light play, the play of light, light and shadow has gone on for millennia and it becomes the crucible from which evolutionary birth and movement happens as it is now, this birthing of our new world that is actually also happening, the midwifing, and we are midwifing in so many ways a new consciousness. We don't even quite know what it, we've got the appearance of it through the deconstructing of these systems. It's very clear that these systems that we've been living under, it's either death to us and the planet as we know it, or the systems change. That, that's it. That's the choice. And we're engage, all engaged in that very deeply. You know, and, it, and it feels ginormous. I mean, it feels complete. There's no way we're going to win out on this. That's what it feels like at this particular moment. You know? And it's, it's a bit like Frodo and Sam when they're going to Mordor. You know, under the eye of Sauron, you know, like Sauron had the all, I mean, that's what we've got at the White House, the eye of Sauron, you know, this is, this is the tower, this is Mordor, yeah, it totally metaphor works, totally, you know, ripping up the trees and the orcs are out there in full, you know, they're not even hiding anymore, they're, they're out there, they're blooded kind of um, orcness ravaging the land and the peoples, you know, King Thoden, sort of under the, 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 uh, the power of worm tongue, the decrepit old king, shadow king, in his venality. Blech. So, you know, this, the, the hobbit, you know, here's the hobbit. You know, what have they got going for them? Not a lot. You know, they love, they love to go to the pub and have a dance and, you know, tell poetry and have a good time, hang out in the shire, you know, and there they are up against Sauron, you know, slogging away across the this landscape, you know, so, and then at a certain point, Frodo just says, I can't do it anymore, you know, I just can't take this ring and throw it back in the, in the fire, I just can't do it, and, and Sam goes, you know, but you kind of, you know, like, you got to, and, and Frodo says, well, why, you know, that's a good question, why the heck should we, you know, like, why don't we just give up, you know, there's definitely a part of me I can see, I just want to roll over, like, yeah, just, this is way too much, (laughs) And, and Sam goes, you know, it's, it's, it's just like those stories of old, you know, that the, when, when, the, when people always, there's always been the stories of old and great challenges and that then people won over and, and you know, we, we won over. And then Frodo says you know, something like, you know, but, but why, why do, we, why do we do that? And, and then in the end, Sam's sort of clincher argument, he said, well, because there's always goodness and it's worth fighting for. There's always beauty, there's always love, there's always aspiration, there's always justice, there's always truth, there's always, there's always reality, that, you know, that there, and it's worth aligning with, it's worth, you know, it's, it's never over, it's never over. You and darkness that I come from, I love you more than all the fires that fence in the world. For fire makes a circle of light for everyone. No one outside learns of you. But the darkness pulls everything in, the shapes and fires, animals and myself, how easily it gathers them in, powers and people. And it's possible a great energy is moving near me. I have faith in nights. Zuroka. We're in in the sort of a, 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 a night 
sort of soul, night soul. And yet that which is the, the light is pulling in all the shadows so we can see them. You know, this light. And we know that. And not to know, you know, part of this journey is, yes, we know and we do stuff. You know, I do think we should do stuff. You know, there has been a lot of lassitude in, um, in the Buddhist community. You know, it's all sort of transcendent and impermanent and let it just all dissolve. I, I don't think we see the Buddha doing that. Actually, he did respond. He did engage very profoundly in the systems and overturned quite a few very significant systems. Where do we do it from? That's the issue. Where do we do it from? Do we do it from the place that we keep separating out? And yes, it doesn't mean to say we don't discern history and separation. But, you know, we're not each other's enemy. You know, there, there is a sort of enemy. There's <laughs> some very serious, you know, you really want to look at what we're fighting against. You know, this sort of oligarchic, one percenter, you know, um, corporate, rogue corporate um, control of the electoral processes, of the, um, of the narrative, of the resources. I mean, there is definitely, you know, Mordor out there. Yeah. But where we come from, I love this piece. I'm going to finish here because I, I recognize that this is a, a lot, a lot. Um, but there's a, a teaching from Nisargadatta Maharaj, wonderful realized being, uh, where he says that the knower comes and go with a known and is transient. So that we see in Vipassana. The knower and the known come and go. We see the transient. But that which knows, it does not know, which is free from memory and anticipation, is timeless, is undying, is truth, is reality, is our deepest refuge. And it is that that is our ally. So it's not that we have to know everything. Because when we strip away our known worlds, when we really arrive in our deepest heart, the heart of listening, then that which knows, he doesn't really know in the way that we know things objectively, but it then has access to, the, as the Ajahn Chah would call the living Dharma, the deep intelligence that always is, always has been, that's speaking through us, that responds and that will lead us, that will guide us where we need to show up, what we need to do, what is our heartbreak, what calls us to action. And then when we feel that, the task is, is in right action, to respond. So it's five past ten on a Wednesday morning here in Marin. Beautiful day. Let's take a silent break until twenty past ten. 10, 15 minutes, and then we'll regather. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.